So ladies and gentlemen, I have just received my first heat headache of the year. You know one of those where you're just out in the sun for a bit and you just start getting a headache? Yeah, we got that already. Count count it for whatever day, 20th of April, it's happened. In the words, public game is Chuck D, bring noise. FM Podcast Network, I'm Charlie Taylor, and this is What's Good. Welcome back ladies and gentlemen, hope you've all had a good week in the circumstances. Yeah man, I've just been out like for the past, I don't know, like fucking, what's it, like 12, 11? No, it's been out since 11, so what's that? Yeah, a few hours, <laughs> at least like four hours. Um, yeah, four or five hours, jeez, well, 11, 12. 13 yeah about five hours jesus crazy yeah i've been in and out um all day so yeah just one of those days and uh, no just come in to record a bit you know what i mean get getting recording right quick see if i can get this out uh, before i have to leave and then uh, go to my pops get something to eat and watch uh arsenal uh, dub chelsea because there is a curse among us um every time i go to my dad's um uh, for 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 specifically for an Arsenal Chelsea game, Arsenal always win, uh, regardless of form, regardless of anything. They just they just cheese out a win every single time. Every time I go there, it just happens. I don't know why it happens, but it just does. And I don't know why I'm doing this to myself. I don't know why I'm doing this. I don't know why I'm going there, expecting a dub, a Chelsea dub. But you know, maybe the cur- I, I have to break the curse, man. It has to be broken. Arsenal have, like lost like last three games if I remember correctly if I'm correct so yeah it has it can't it can't be done it can't it can't keep going on it can't keep going on gotta break the curse um and uh yes and um you know gonna get some chicken and rice as well so that's cool too but yeah man apart from that solid week can't complain um just uh you know I'm just enjoying the nice weather you know what I mean just getting some nice weather in really really nice uh really nice weather you know getting them consistent 13 15 sometimes 16s uh, got an 18 in London uh, the, uh, a few days ago, so apparently, so that's good. Um, yeah, well, good in, you know, <laughs> good in some sense, I guess, <laughs> bad in others. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's it's all good. And uh, yeah, I can't complain. This is I can't I can't I'm really nothing on my mind uh, for the for the week. So yeah, with that said, let's jump right in, shall we? So we have three, three society. Uh, topics uh, for this episode and the music um, and we're going to do all three societies um, back to back to back and do the music one for last because it's always because it's, nice, it's a nice one um, so yeah formatties before we begin as always email to this going to link all that all that, all that in the full show notes actually good thing actually good thing to say um i'm 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 gonna i'm i'm so close to dipping off ig i'm so close i think maybe potentially by the end of the year i might dip off it i might dip off it um it, it might be the next one to go twitter's like i said like i've said before twitter might not go ever i'm not sure maybe if elon buys it then i'll probably dip but um yeah i i, I don't know um twitter's just too i don't want to say essential for me it's the wrong word but you know but actually you know what? i'll stop there because it actually gets into the first topic so that with that said let's jump right in you know, discord equal that will in the full show notes please go peep the articles for yourself give them a read for yourself and support the writers that make the show possible and with that said let the beat drop and let's get into the show 
in a week where Kendrick Lamar is dropping his fifth studio album next month, a day after my birthday. I am so fucking blessed. It's absolutely blessed. I, I can't believe it. I, I just can't believe it. I, I just can't believe that's the day. If it was if it was on my birthday, it would have been hilariously cool. Uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's the day after. That's fine by me. I'm, I, I'm, I'm cool. I'm cool. We're getting a fucking Kendrick album, bro. We're getting the fifth Kendrick album. The last one on TDE. I have no idea what he's going to do after this, man. I, I, I really have no idea. So um, yeah, just I'm just going to enjoy this. He's already he's already buoying buoying off the fans uh, by making people go on his site and look through and fish through tons of folders and it's hilarious to watch. Um, I'm not that kind of person. I've stopped doing that after da- after the damn rumors, which I was so steeped in. I just can't do that anymore. I, I'm I've, I've been bit once. I'm not doing that again. I generally thought there were two damn albums, and technically there are. You know, got a collection, but um, yeah, not not in this, not in the way I thought. Uh, UK home office home office. Seek to deport illegal mean uh, illegal uh, means asylum seekers uh, to Rwanda. Um, so yeah, that's gonna be pointlessly expensive and just pointlessly cruel. And uh, you know, right on right on the money for what the conservative government is. I feel like this is kind of just like a statement of intent more than anything. This is not feasible in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, they just want to say. They just want to describe how demonic they want to be. You know what I mean? That's basically what it is. It's crazy. Uh, DJ K Slay, pioneer in hip-hop ice, long-time radio host, and graffiti artist before everything else, uh, dies age 55 after a month-long battle with COVID-19. RIP, uh, Boris Johnson apologizes in Parliament. So everything's fine, guys. Everything is fine. I saw today, I, read, I saw a video of, of Jacob Rees-Mogg. Oh, gosh, I want to fight him so bad. I, I, I literally want to fight him so bad. I want to throw hands on the dude, right? That lanky twat, right? So he comes through. Newsnight got him uh, just before he was going to go in the House of Commons asking him about the thing, right? And he used this analogy about cricket, and it just doesn't track. It He literally used an analogy of all things cricket and still bottles it. It's... it's oh, they, uh, they, they literally... I, I, I said to my mum, I don't know if I could defend you this hard. You know what I mean? Like, I, I'll, I'll defend, I'll defend my family if they did something wrong, right? You know what I mean? You know, family stuff, right? Family, family first, right? And all that kind of stuff, right? Friends, maybe, right? But um, these people are defending their work colleagues. I'm not defending no work colleague. If you fucked up, you fucked up. That's on you, bruv. I'm not defending you like this. The the lengths they are going to is absolutely outstanding. Like the dick riding is is elite levels, elite levels. And lastly, Julian Assange uh, extradition to the US is one step closer as UK court approves uh, removal. And it's all up to you guessed it, Pretty Patel to rubber stamp the last to 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 give the tick box and send him away. Which, as you can imagine. With what I just said about the uh, 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 asylum seekers to Rwanda, is not an impossible thought. So let's jump right into the first of three society topics, and um, yeah, so this one is uh, literally funny enough about um, logging off. Right, um, I was literally talking about that before. I've been I've been on this crusade of mine of myself to you know wean myself off of social media. Um, I'm off Facebook, and that's been great. Uh, now it's the easy one. Um, now it's IG, which is next, and uh, down the line Twitter. Um, and um, yeah, I just I'm, I feel like I'm getting there towards. I'm getting to that point on IG. Um, 
I'm 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 on it. I'm going on it. I feel like I'm going on it less than this. I don't know that for a fact. I should probably check my like you know screen on time stats for that, but I can't be asked. And yeah, I just I just feel like I'm I'm slowly finding less and less reasons to be on it. Uh, most of the time, it's just to you know just post vibes um, of like just songs I like, whatever you know. What I mean, fifteen second chunks and post a picture of the sun, whatever. Uh, with a song and uh, and my my podcast. That's literally it. That's literally all I do on IG. You know, I send a few people some memes. That's it. Like, you know, but I could do that anyway. I could I could I could send them memes anyway. Um, but we just use IG for whatever reason. Um, but yeah, this is cool. But this is uh, something that actually I didn't really think about. But it's really as soon as I read it, I was just like, oh yeah, this is facts. This is facts. So this is by Mr. Hussein Kezvani, uh, off the Independent. And it's called The New Digital Divide, People Who Can Afford to Log Off and Those Who Can't. So let's jump right in. Over the past few weeks, I have been trying to consciously take time to, quote, log off and touch grass. Not in a literal sense, I live in London, but rather in relation to the meme touch grass. It is largely used as an insult towards those who spend too much, so much time on social media they've forgotten a real world exists. The phrase has been used more frequently over the past couple of years where many of us have spent a record amount of time online during COVID-related lockdowns. That time was, wasn't was just spent uh, browsing social media or binge-watching Netflix shows. A large portion of our days spent online are at work, namely in the Zoom meetings, on Slack and MS Teams chats, or responding to streams of emails. Often there is no longer a hard start or finish time at work, a problem that is more pervasive if you happen to be one of a growing number of freelance contractors. I want to pause right here, and I think France have a law that they put in recently that um, that that dis that basically like disallow um, uh, you know uh, higher up superiors to text workers when they're off when they're off clock. They can't send emails. They can't they can't text them or phone them. Nothing nothing like that. Uh, but that obviously accounts to you know the nine to five people, and he's obviously in this case, as as it said in the last uh, line, growing number of freelance contractors. So, yeah, freelance is a whole different story, and obviously this is the the point of the article right here. Anyway, continue. On. As I've tried to carve out small pockets of the day to be fully offline, I have found myself unable to part with my phone, not because I fear missing out socially, but financially. I fear that logging off for as little as an as little as half an hour might mean a missed project or work opportunity, uh, one that might make bills a bit easier at the end of the month. For many of my friends who face higher rents and mortgages, the fear is all too familiar. From copywriters working project to project, computer programmers competing for low uh, paid app development gigs, and digital designers juggling projects. In the gig economy, this economy insecurity is built in. Uber's app uh, discourages drivers from switching off on the basis that its algorithms reward drivers who take on more trips, while instant food delivery apps have turned many local restaurants into ghost kitchens, depending on growth of the app to survive. Hyperconnectivity brings demands to constantly be online and always be available for a project, delivery or task. After all, your livelihood depends on it. This shift challenges some of the conventional thinking around internet access and progressive politics. Access to the internet has long been an indicator of development, whether it's UN's targets for universal affordable internet access by 2030, or the Labour Party's malign proposals for nationwide broadband coverage in 2019. During COVID lockdowns, nearly a quarter of the British public lacked individual skills to work from home, and poor areas were worse off in receiving education, claiming welfare, or hearing public health messages according to Cambridge University research. 
Uh, fast, reliable internet access should be accessible to all, but it's impossible not to see connectivity as the be-all and end-all. The past two years should be evidence. Excuse me. Uh, that ev- uh, that internet is uh, that the internet is far more than a repository of information, but a system imbe- embedded into every aspect of our lives, and that comes with a personal cost. After all, it's not just our jobs that have become increasingly digital, but our social lives too. Even hosting a dinner party or pub quiz requires at least some engagement with a California-based tech platform. See, that's where I stop there, and I'm just like, no, I've I've stopped. I've tried to stop that. I've tried to stop that. And that's partly why I have my camera as well. Like, I wanna I wanna create memories, but I don't wanna do it for the IG. I don't wanna do it for the gram. Um, a side note: I've literally created a a website for my photography. I haven't posted it. It's not live or anything. Um, but I will go live with it at some point when I have the money to do it and get a domain and everything like that and all the stuff of bells and whistles I want. Um, but yeah, you know, I don't want my IG to be for my photos anymore. I literally don't. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll probably use it for Fifth Element stuff. But apart from that, I I I want to kill off my personal account at least at minimum. I want to kill off that. Um, but you know, who knows if that will ever happen for me? Um, it's likely because I don't get any business on IG. So uh, apart from Fifth Element stuff, so yeah, there's probably no point. It's likely then that a different kind of digital inequality will emerge. Will emerge. Where there's not connectivity that determines the determined social class, but the ability to meaningly, meaningfully log off. Wow, there's so many ads on this. Uh, some of this is already like multiple scroll. Four, four of the same, same ad uh, video slots I just got. Wow, four of the same. That's crazy. Uh, a world record. Uh, some of this is already beginning to take shape. Digital de- detox summer camps in which people pay tens to thousands of dollars to camp out in the mountains away from their phones, is a popular destination for rich tech bros looking to, quote, reconnect with nature, unquote. Celebrity Selena Gomez has reportedly not been on the internet for four years, instead using a team to manage her online presence. Those with money and resources can benefit from digital cleanses, but this is a privilege for relatively few uh, in the digital labour market. It is a stark contrast to workers who are exposed to darker, more demanding digital jobs and, even after clocking out, still carry a heavy mental toll. In 2016, oh, here we go, this is funny enough. In 2016, the French government introduced the right to disconnect, in which workers were given the right to not read or respond to work-related emails outside of office hours. Similar legislation has been enacted or debated in countries including Spain, Canada and South Korea. And while the law should be welcomed, early evidence shows it's largely middle and higher earning white collar workers who are the main beneficiaries. Uh, our conversations about the digital divide need to take into account uh, both access to the internet and how a person's experiences of being on the internet is intrinsically linked to their social class. So what should be done to address digital inequalities? Unsurprisingly, the answer has less to do with technology than politics. From joining and forming unions to campaigning for a more democratic, participatory uh, internet, divorcing from from for-profit providers, uh, the mainstreaming of hybrid working alongside campaigns such as the four-day work week might help us see the internet as more than just an extension of our working lives. In doing so, it might even reduce our impulse to constantly be online and available at a moment's notice. Ultimately, though, the right to disconnect must be considered as important as the right to connect to the internet. Achieving this will give digital workers the dignity they deserve. Without this, our likely future is one of an extremely polarised internet in which the poorest are coerced into spending the vast majority of their waking hours on it, while the richest will be able to vanish entirely. And that's the entire article, and it's very, it's actually kind of interesting and ironic um, in some ways, because... 
I I literally talked I literally talked about the Kendrick uh, thing first off in a week where, and uh, he had a message on his website. Um, I think it's like OK LMAA, uh, yeah, OK LMAA dot com or something. OK Lamar, um, and um, it literally he literally posted a message, you know, saying like, you know, I've been gone, da da da, and he says I haven't been on online in months. I haven't been on social media in months. I haven't been on my phone in. Uh, he hasn't been on his phone in months. Do you understand how impossible that is for me? Do you understand how impossible that is for most people to be off your phone for months? Think about that. That is absolutely that is that's so depressing of how of how impossible that comes off for me. <laughs> like in my mind, that comes off as such an impossibility. It's actually crazy. I can't imagine that. I literally can't imagine it anymore. Like back in the day when I was a kid, I remember those days. I remember those days. Um, you know, I remember days of not even having a phone. I do remember that. Um, I remember the only, I remember having, you know, classic Nokia brick phone, right? And all I had was, you know, text calls, a set number of texts, a set number of calls, and a snake. That's it. (laughs) You know, and then I, you know, I went up to like a a slide up Samsung and, you know, that was kind of cool to text a little bit of internet, but not really much. And, uh, yeah, and you know whatever game was on that probably probably Snakers uh, again, um, but yeah, man. As soon as smartphone shit came in, like I, rem- I remember just the consistent, consistent being on it, and um, I'm just I'm I'm kind of happy that I've kind of I've I've I'm being able to even think about this in a way, and you know have made strides to um, to do other stuff apart from just being on Facebook and. Uh, you know, play Farmville or some shit, you know what I mean? And play just like an endless, uh, you know, just free-to-play game that just slaps on ads all the time, right? You know, I have a couple of games uh, on my phone, literally two, maybe, not, uh, well, three, but I play, like, two of them. And, um, yeah, you know, just, I, I, yeah, I play them sometimes, but I don't play them often. And, but even with that, you know, when it comes to this article, working? Oh, shit, man. Oh, it's impossible. It's impossible. Like, I pride my... And this is the thing. I really do pride myself on being a very, very attentive... Um, attentive uh, person when it comes to my work, right? If someone hits me up for some work, I'm there. Boom. Like, let's sort it out. Let's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's me up. Let's do this. Uh, I, you know, just try and quickly do the task as efficiently as possible. And try and sort it out, right? Quick, you know, quick as quick as possible. Regardless of time. Wake up with it. Go sleep with it. You know? But I, 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 a world where I don't have my phone on me. Now, now, just to say, I do appreciate my phone for some things. You know, what I mean, I like finding out travel shit very quickly if I'm on the move. Right, I can, you know, I can look up shit up quickly. I, I like that. I like the fact I can do that. I appreciate the the tool side of my phone. I do appreciate that fully. Um. So, you know, like we were talking about dumb phones a couple of weeks ago, you know, I'm not really, a, I'm not really into that. I do like having a smartphone in some ways and I like using the tool aspect of it, of like, you know, helping on City Mapper and just, you know, uh, logging out a trip right quick and see how long it takes, yada, yada. But, you know, I can, I can, di- I can ditch the games. I can ditch that. And I'd love to be able to ditch the, you know, the, the work side of things on my phone, but I don't think that could happen. Um, and that's the thing. That's the thing. That's a real class tr- struggle, right? There's a real class economic, uh, 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 yeah, socio-economic struggle. It really is. 
Um, and uh, I, I genuinely don't think this is this is something that's been flagged up. And you know, put a pin in this because this will probably be on the news like in three years. You know what I mean? Just it'll just be on the news for three years at down the line, and I'll just, and I'll come back on here and I'll be like, see, I, 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 I talked about this. I talked about this years ago, and uh, now people are finding clocking up to it. So speaking of class and uh, <laughs> things like that, <laughs> um, so this is a fascinating um, polling uh, results uh, article I found uh, via the New Statesman. This is by Anoush uh, Shekelian and uh, Michael Goodyear. Uh, this is called, Is Marcus Rashford Working Class? The answer depends on your age. Um, yeah, and they basically just did a, uh, a really good um, poll on, uh, on celebrities and if people consider them working class, because it's an interesting conversation, um, thinking about that, right? Because obviously Marcus Rashford's Marcus Rashford, but he's also a man, a man you player. He's, he's rich as fuck right now. You know what I mean? He wasn't, he, at the time he wasn't, but, you know, he's, he's rich as fuck, so he's clearly out of that. He clearly hopped out of that. But um, it's, it's interesting how people think about class, obviously, in this case. So let's jump right in. How posh is Posh Spice? The answer, the new Stameson can reveal, uh, very much depends on your age. The older you are, the less likely you are to see Victoria Beckham as upper class. That's fascinating. Just off the bat, like the fact that the fact that older people consider consider don't consider their upper class. I don't know, I feel like it should have been the other way, but apparently it isn't. In a new poll conducted exclusively for the New Statesman by Redfield and Wilton Strategies, we asked the British public to categorise 25 famous Britons as working, middle, or upper class. In previous research, we had already built a picture of how the public defines uh, those labels. Uh, while they, while most say the key indicator of class is income level, uh, there are particular cultural and social factors at play in people's minds too. This latest survey shows just 15% of those aged, uh, aged 55 to 64 would describe Beckham as upper class, compared with 68% of 18 to 24-year-olds. Uh, there's a lot of um, graphs and shit here if you want to go see it, so highly encourage you to peep the article for yourself on that fact, uh, if you just want the visuals. Beckham isn't the only celebrity whose class status is uh, seen differently by the young and old. The pop star Harry Styles is seen as upper class by 78% of 18 to 24-year-olds, falling to just 7% of those aged 55 to 64. What do you look... Rec- what, is all, what do all people classes work uh, as as high class now, as a middle or upper class? Uh, what do they, who do they consider upper class now? Jacob Rees-Mogg? We all do that. We all think that. Anyway. Even celebrities well known for their working class upbringing are seen chiefly as upper class by younger respondents. For example, the footballer Marcus Rashford is seen as upper class by 56% of 18 to 24 year olds, compared to uh, compared with 10.3% of those aged 56 to 64, 55 to 64. Uh, the businessman Alan Sugar is uh, seen as upper class by 63% of respondents aged 20, 18 to 34, and 29% of 55 to 64. Uh, quote, it is interesting to see how someone like Marcus Rashford is viewed, says John Street, uh, professor of politics at the University of East Anglia, um, who has researched young citizens' attitudes to celebrity politics. You might have expected, given the way that he, Rashford, has linked his own experience to campaigns for school dinners, that he would be viewed as working class, which he is by older voters, but not by younger ones, unquote. 
Um, there's also a list here. So they've got um, Tyson Fury, Katie Price, Rashford, Cheryl Cole, Lenny Henry, Adele, Molly May, Tom Daly, Ed Sheeran, Victoria Beckham, Harry Styles, Jamie Oliver, Helly Willoughby, Jeremy Corbyn, Paul McCartney, Andy Murray, Anna Sugar, J.K. Rowling, Nicholas Sturgeon, and Trevor McDonald. Oh, here we go. Five more. Keir Starmer, Nigel Farage, Theresa May, Nigella Lawson, and Boris, Boris Johnson. Um, and yeah, it literally just... Um, it's, it's, it's actually kind of interesting to look at. Yeah, but, you know, find that, find that. Have a look for it yourself. Um, it's, it's obviously a visual, so I'm not going to describe it. Uh, Britain's perceptions of class are changing among millennials and Gen Z, who are more likely to link class to income than Generation X, baby boomers and beyond, we have discovered. Uh, for example, in previous surveys, we have identified a so-called footballer gap. Uh, the occupation of being a footballer is viewed as upper class by 57% of 18 to 24-year-olds, uh, compared with just 60% of those aged 65 and over. Plus a sparky gap, electricians are viewed as working class uh, by just 42% of 18 to 24-year-olds with 68% of those over age of 65. The age disparity may partly be due to shifting views of different occupations in the UK as the world of work changes. Excuse me, a quote. Uh, what the what might be playing out in these results is a shifting sense of how in- entertainers are viewed in terms of status. With entertainment being granted the highest status among the young and the lowest status by the older generations who related more to more traditional role models, Street said. Nobody seems to allow for the fact uh, that class is about relations of production and employment and that all celebrities might be seen as members of the self-employed entrepreneurial class, uh, unquote. Uh, our data on celebrity in particular, quote, seems to reveal that there are competing accounts of what might define class as between wealth and social, uh, social cultural factors, with the young more inclined to see the class, to see class in terms of wealth and older generations in terms of background, said Street. See, that's interesting because I do, I see it as both. I, I see it as both. I see it as, I, you know, I try and, I try and, I try to see it as both, but I guess I do see it in terms of wealth. Like, if you are just, if you are, you know, going to be generation generationally rich. I don't really. I don't think background matters. It's kind of where you're at right now. As I kind of look at, is how I look at it. So, I don't know. Um, but then again, electricians, right? You know, they get good pay. Some of them, I don't know. I say that I don't even know. But you know, they they get good work, right? Good rates and all that. So yeah, they may be doing fine. They may be, you know, middle class in that case. But you know, you don't consider that because they're electricians. They're sparkies. Um, Anyway, this shift could be fr- uh, could be down to the different ways that younger Brits perceive power and influence, suggested Chris Rojek, uh, Rojek uh, proje- a professor of sociology at City University London and a specialist in the study of celebrity. Well, must, must be a fun specialty. Uh, gossip uh, being a being a celebrity guy, but not you know, but academically. I mean, celebrities, but not you know, academically. Quote. Uh, younger people would appear to identify membership uh, of the upper class with power and social impact, he said. It reflects social media, uh, which prioritises celebrity coverage by attention capital rather than accent, schooling or parental occupation. Uh, I, yeah, I don't care about parental occupation, that don't matter to me. Uh, the findings also suggest that class's hierarchy perceive, is be, class hierarchy is perceived uh, by young people in the present tense, i.e. the media and, how, and social media time uh, that people have now. Uh, the more media time, the higher class position, Roger added. Uh, the historical relationship of how class to ancestry may be waning. Uh, now, perspective based on power, social impact, and online recognizability seems to be growing in importance. Okay, that that fits me. That fits what I'm thinking about. That that fits. That fits what I'm thinking about. So it's not about it, it's it's not about ancestry. 
Like, obviously, you know, the Royals are the Royals, right? And, you know, they, sh- they shouldn't be the Royals anymore, right? But if you, if you, if you, it's, it's about right now for me, right? If, if you got that power, Marcus Rashford has social impact. You don't do that. You don't have social impact if you're working class. I, you know, here's what it is. He's one person and he has power on that front by being, by being not working class in my mind. Um, but anyway. This trend has uh, been a long time in the making, he observed. Quote, for many years, it has been evident to me uh, that for most of my students, social media is society, i.e. a source of belonging, community, identity, aspiration, unquote. Yet a view of celebrities as upper class was still rare in our polling. In general, out of the 25 celebrities listed, just six were perceived by most respondents as being upper class. Those most likely to be seen as upper class were... Yeah, the politicians, with Boris Johnson identified by such as 71% of people, Theresa May by 49%, Keir Starmer by 44 uh, There's a few more graphs about Corbyn and Sturgeon as well. Uh, for some on the celebrities on our list, there is a tendency for every section of society to see them as one of our own. Uh, respondents in our survey who identify as working class, for example, say Ed Sheeran is working class. Uh, middle class respondents say he's middle class and upper class respondents say he's upper class the same goes for Adele and Harry Styles that's funny right, that's kind of interesting that is interesting that is an interesting part of it, I don't know how to think about that let me marinate on that these results go to some way go some way to explain why certain famous people have such favourable favourable public images uh, we tend to believe they are quote unquote like us that is interesting. Okay. Other notable patterns include a London divergence. Respondents living in the capital have a different view of Box Tyson Fury and Marcus Rashford class than the rest of the country. Just 22% of people in the capital view him as working class, with every other region polling between 38 and 65% for Fury and 32-58% for Rashford. Labour voters were slightly more likely than Conservatives to think that celebrities are upper class, the expectations being Keir Starmer and Lenny Henry. <laughs> That's so corny. Uh, the same is true, vice versa. We conservative voters more likely to view celebrities as working class and labor, uh, than, uh, than Labour voters. Um, yeah, so they're splitting up. Uh, they've done a graph, uh, graph uh, splitting out by conservative and Labour as well, which is interesting. Um, here are the official results, including who, those who picked don't know. Okay, that's, yeah, okay, I'm not going to read all that, but yeah. Um, that is interesting. That is interesting. I don't really know what to come out with that. Like, personally, I feel like if you are a celebrity, you are probably middle to high, middle to upper class. You know, even... even th- I think the most extreme case could be, like, something like Johnny Vegas, right? I remember when he had... He had he was on Ideal, um, which was a show, I think, I think, on, like, BBC Three back in the day, and he came into that job in, I think... Correct me if I'm wrong, but he came into that, like skin right and probably you know he probably it was i mean the show the show was i mean my sister liked it i know that for a fact i didn't watch it but um you know it was it was it's a cult classic let's say that right it's similar in the similar vein of like uh two pies to log and a pack of crisps if you ain't seen it if you ain't seen that show lit show classic cult classic um but yeah you know that's an extreme example because you know johnny vegas is has been on tv for over 15 years now, nearly 20 years, right, in some fashion, in some capacity, I've always seen him somewhere on, like, a panel show or whatever, and, you know, he can't be, he can't be skin, right, but, but I'm thinking about this in terms of wealth, I'm thinking about this in terms of income, I don't know everybody's income, unless they're a businessman or a footballer or a sports person, I don't know their income, honestly, if I'm being real, right, 
I don't know. I don't know politicians' income. I mean, they. <laughs> I mean, you know, you, I don't know because they ain't because some of them don't say their fucking income properly. But um, you know, I I don't know their income. If it, they're definitely over fifty k, I know that for sure. So you know, I consider that definitely upper class. That's one percent technically in the UK. I think. I think it's. I think it's fifty k. Um. So yeah, you know. Uh, dentistry people get that, so that's that, that's that's upper class right there in my mind. One percent, that's upper class. So yeah, if you, I feel like if you if if go just go by percentage, if you make over fifty k, I feel like you're upper class in some fashion. You know what I mean? I, I what the f- shit I do fifty k a year. The shit I do. Oh my gosh, I'd have so much freedom, so much freedom. But you know, it is what it is. So I don't. I I genuinely consider it in a in a matter of wealth and influence maybe not maybe not you know slightly to that because they didn't make they didn't mention you know social media and how that runs into it i don't really care about that but in some cases probably i do i don't know i don't follow marcus rashford but the fact that he can tweet something and get you know thousands of retweets or whatever because he fed some use then you know that's something that's generally something that's not working class to me not in my mind not in my mind. Um, so yeah, it is an interesting, it is an interesting thing. I feel like uh, that's probably uh, something worth marinating over as a topic. Um, but I'll leave it there. And uh, yeah, but on, on, just riddle, riddle it to me. Riddle, uh, riddle it to me. Yeah, in, in your mind, what do you consider upper class? Because clearly, from how I've talked about it, I consider it more about money and social influence. Maybe not social media, but social influence in some fashion. So. So hop into our third and final uh, society segment, and this is all about. <laughs> so. As you can imagine, right, with a guy that does this podcast here, podcast, right, and you know, talks about certain topics, you know what I mean, a myriad of topics, I'd like to say, right, and you know, reads out articles, right, and has a bonus, uh, you know, episodes when he long reads, right, and tries to pronounce stuff properly. Um, you can imagine I'm I'm a stickler for a bit of pronunciation. Yeah, you know, I, I like to I like people that pronounce it properly, right. I'm not, you know, I'm not finishing school level, right? I'm not like, how do you do? I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm that kind of person. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm, you know, I talk in my Emily, whatever. But I do sometimes have to, you know, I don't, I don't always correct people's speech. You know what I mean? Correct people's mispronunciations, right? But you know, it's, it, it, I do, I have, I've been known to do it, you know what I mean, I don't think I do it all the time, but you know, if they say something egregious, it's more, you know, um, you know what I do, instead of correcting it, because most of the time they know they said it wrong, but you know, it, it just, it just lends to some roasting, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of all like, I like to do anyway, I'm just like, excuse me, what was that, what was that, say, say, it, say it again, say it again, yeah, all right, cool, yeah, but um, apparently, we should stop making. We should stop correcting people's mistakes. Um, this is the argument put forward by Miss Jane Setter, who is professor of phonetics at University of Reading. Um, this is via the conversation, and it's called mispronunciation. Why you should stop correcting people's mistakes? So let's jump right in. 
A recent survey of 2,000 adults in the UK identified the top 10 mispronunciations people find annoying. Thankfully, the majority, 65% of annoyed people, do not feel comfortable correcting a speaker in public. But leaving aside the fact that 2,000 people is hardly representative a sample of the UK, with its population of over 66 million, this survey raises long-standing linguistic questions. Why do people pronounce words differently? Why does pronunciation change? And why does so-called mispronunciation upset some people to the point of making it possible uh, and interesting to compile a top 10 list? I'm a phonetician, an expert in the way uh, people make speech sounds and pronounce language. I've also written about what we can learn about a person from the way they speak. Uh, universal truth about language is that it is a subject. Uh, it is subject to constant change, and pronunciation pronunciation uh, uh, is like correct myself uh, is just as likely to change over time as aspects like grammar or vocabulary. While criticism of speakers who pronounce nuclear nuclear as nuclear is that it does not match the spelling. In fact, English is known for having some very irregular spelling uh, to sound correspondences. So. Uh, that argument does not always hold up. The most extreme cases are probably family and place names. The surname Featherstone F- Ho? Featherstone Ho? Hog? Ho? H A U G H at the end there? Featherstone Ho? Ho? Hoff? Hoff. It's Featherstone Hoff. That's what it is, isn't it? It's, it's Featherstone Hoff. Because there was a girl in my primary school with that same, with that same spelling, Laura Hoff. So, so it's probably that. It's probably Hoff. Uh, can be pronounced uh, to sound like fan Fanshawe, for example, while Terp- Torp- Torpenhow in Cumbria is pronounced Trepana. Oh, this is gonna. This whole article is gonna fuck me up, isn't it? God damn it! I wish I didn't do this now. How did we get to those pronunciations? Through a process of gradual historical uh, language change. These changes could be the result of social interaction. Other people say it like this. Mishearing, spelling, pronunciations, phonetic processes, or the influence of other languages, among other other things. Certainly, language change is inevitable, which is handy because it keeps us linguists in business and generates a lot of copy for newspapers and the like. Let's have a look at some of the pronunciations people objected to in that survey. Fuck, do we have to... Espresso is pronounced expresso by many people, even though there is no X in the spelling. Yeah, I, I pronounce it espresso. Like, I don't know pe- why people say espresso. Why, why do you why do you go out go out of your way to say the X? Like it's espresso. Espr- you you add in you add another thing. Espresso, espresso, espresso. Like it's, 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 I don't know. I find it I find it easy. The pronoun- this pronunciation uh, probably arose by analogy with the word express. Uh, the two are actually cognate words with similar origins, both ne- meaning press out or obtain by squeezing. If you hear someone ask for an espresso, it's easy to see how you might mishear this to be nearer to a word you already know, and therefore adopt that pronunciation. Importantly, you are unlikely to misunderstand what a speaker has asked for. We don't have a similar issue with the pronunciation pronunciation of cappuccino or macchiato because we simply don't have anything similar to those words in English. Incidentally, I'm reliably informed that the French word for espresso is espresso. Vive la difference. <laughs> Vive la difference. <laughs> I don't know if I did difference probably, so I don't know. Difference. Vive la difference. Vive la difference. Uh, the pronunciation of probably as probably likely arises from a process called weak syllable elision, 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 or deletion. 
the weak second syllable improbably is often deleted in speech. A similar phenomenon happens in especially, pronounced specially. The first syllable is weak and is deleted. <laughs> it's, it's giving me a bit of 1984 vibes, Loki. In, in English, the most important, important syllables for listening comprehension are stressed. That's why young children acquire language, say, potatoes for potatoes or pajamas for pajamas. In rapid adult speech, it is li- very likely that these weak syllables will be deleted. As George Bailey, a sociolinguist at the University of York notes, it is interesting that probably, and especially, are singled out when we do this with many words. He gives the examples memory, pronounced memory, and library, pronounced library, uh, which did not make the list. I have, however, noticed a recent change in... Oh, Glad you found one. A recent change in the way some words have historically had weak syllable elision. I don't know if I'm saying that right. I should probably look it up anyway. Are pronounced, uh, for example, irreparable. Uh, seems to be changing from four syllables with the main stress on the second, irreparable, uh, to five syllables, the main stress on the third, irreparable. 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 I don't know which one I'm saying right. Irreparable. I say the second. I say the first one. Irreparable. Irreparable, irreparable. I don't, I don't know. No, this is that. With a stressed syllable sounding like pair, irreparable, irrepair, irreparable. Okay, I see. I see where they're going there. I'm not entirely sure what is going on here, but it could be an analogy with the word repair or with comparable, which seems to be shifting from compa- comparable. Oh, I didn't even say. It. I said comparable. You know, <laughs> I said comparable. Ah. <laughs> Comparable is comparable. I should say comparable. That's funny. <laughs> Which seems to be shifted from comparable to comparable. Ugh. Damn, I'm doing it. I'm, I'm, I'm doing it. I'm deleting. I'm, I'm illusioning. Uh, the last word I'll draw out for examination is Arctic. Pronounced arc, art, Arctic. It is pronounced. <laughs> it is possible that the first C might not be heard in rapid speech, even if a speaker is articulates. It's articulating it. This is because it is produced further back in the oral cavity. Than the following T, and so its release can be masked. Uh, masked. See, that's an that's an that's that's an interesting one. I've noticed that for myself. Masked. I don't say masked. I say masked. Masked. I literally say masked, like phone masked. Anyway, historically, as Graham Poynton, uh, formerly the BBC's pronunciation advisor, interesting job there. Uh, formerly uh, uh, has noted the Chambers etymol. Et- etymological, I think that's how you say it. Dictionary lists the earliest English English version as Arctic. The C could have been reinserted during the Renaissance period, when scholars sought to reform e- English uh, spelling to reflect classical language such as Latin or Greek, Latin and Greek. Unfortunately, they also reformed the spelling of words which had entered the language via other routes. This gave us such fun spellings as det, uh, b b t, uh, for what had been written det in d e t t d e t t e in Middle English, and came from Old French det, d-e-t-e, and of course we don't pronounce the b in det. Uh, another route for language change is the influence of other speakers. I'm half expecting people to start pronouncing microwave <laughs> quite differently following the viral clip of Nigel Lawson. You know what, I'm not even going to say it, because it is great, and I, I low-key want to use it like that. But I'm just going to leave it for you to look up because it's hilarious. Um, I've already had discussions with people who have already adopted it just for fun. How long before it goes mainstream? That is a genuine question. I, I do feel like I'll be saying that because it's very only fools and horses. I like it. I'm surprised it wasn't said in only fools and horses. It is great. Shout out to Nigella Lawson. Is Nigella Lawson upper class? Uh, so what does all this say about the 35% of people who feel compelled to correct so-called mispronunciations in public? 
Nothing good in my opinion. It seems to be a pedantic display of perceived superiority, uh, which can uh, only result in a person with the unacceptable pronunciation looking stupid. The way people speak and pronounce words is very much dependent on their language background and experience. By correcting the pronunciation that you have to that you have actually understood but somehow checked to, you could be inadvertently or even purposefully pointing out perceived deficiencies. uh, Yeah, deficiencies arising from differences in social class, culture, race, gender, and so on. Correcting pronunciation can actually be an art of linguistic prejudice. This is different from correcting a language learner in a pronunciation classroom or asking someone to repeat something you you have not understood, for example. uh, Taking someone politely aside is less threatening, but you should still consider your motivations for doing so. It might not always be the case, but that the correctors' motivations are self-centred. My father always corrected me in private because he believed that having a non-standard accent, particularly one which is perceived as ugly by some, would negatively affect my career prospects. Sadly, at the time, this was the 1980s, I think my father was right. Issues of linguistic prejudice are linked to race and class. Uh, Linked to race and class are still alive and well, as was recently brought into sharp focus in an article on the American television news journalist Dion uh, Broxton. The good news is that linguistics in the UK are actively working on research and resources to help combat accent prejudice. Okay, two things I'll uh, go off on and uh, I'll leave it after that. So the first one is that I recently watched a documentary about Michael X, if you want to look him up, uh, Michael uh, DeFratis, uh, more more notably, uh, well, Michael X is probably more notable <laughs> than Michael DeFratis, but yeah, Michael X. Um, and uh, I watched a documentary on it and he went into court one time and uh, he said a term, I forgot what the term was, um, but basically, like, are you blowing smoke up my ass? That's basically what he meant. But he said it in, like, a Trinidad, um, Trinidad Trini-based uh, uh, term. And he said it in a UK court um, to, like, kind of make a point about, um, I don't know, uh, kind of, like, uh, his speech is different from UK speech, right? Um, and it backfired on him. He ended up getting a year in prison. Um, but it's interesting how that comes about, right? And lastly... I said it's not, I, you know, I'm, I'm a kind of a stickler for mispronunciations. I'm not that kind of a stickler. I'm not going to, like, say, oh, no, you don't say that. You don't say it like that. You say it like this. Like, I, I'm not, I don't care. I, I don't care. Like, if, if Northerners want to say baff instead of bath, go for it. Like, it's all you, mate. It's to say your baff. Uh, say, you know what I mean? Say our kids, all that. Say, say all that. I don't care. I'm not that deep into lingui- linguistics like that. I'm not. I'm not. A, I'm not a pronunciation Nazi on that front. I don't care. Um, but it is it is just kind of funny how some people say things, and it's just hilarious. Um, so yeah, it is is um, it, it, I'm not one of those people. Like you know, in the article, not one of those people. I just want to say that, <laughs> you know, just to just to confirm. I I I, don't, I like roasting people for for saying things in it in a wrong way, but I'm not gonna correct them in public and embarrass them over it. You know what I mean? In a light roasty way, maybe. But I'm not gonna be like, oh, oh you don't say it like that. You say it like this, silly. I'm, I'm not that kind of person. There's no way, fucking hell, I'm that person. So we finish on our music segment, and this is all about ambient music. Ambient music. If you don't know what ambient music is, basically, it's um. I mean, just look up. Just just look up for yourself. 
it's everywhere. In, it's actually a really popular genre of music, actually. Um, there's a fuck ton of people that listen to it. Shout out to Homie Ben, who um, is who's most of his every time he gets his Spotify wrapped, it, most of it is just ambient because he just sleeps to it, um, and it's basically his life wallpaper. Um, so this is an interesting article I found uh, by Isabella Herrera off uh, the uh, New York Times. It's called "Ambient Music Isn't a Backdrop; It's an Invitation to Suspend Time." And this is interesting because I'm just like, eh, you know, on the face, I was just like, I, it's it's just to help you sleep, bruv. Like, so it's something, there's no rhyme or reason to it. Or is there? Because, you know, there's a lot of ambient artists that, you know, get a lot of work. So I don't know how you become an ambient artist. I don't know how you make ambient music, right? But, you know, people have made livings off this shit. So maybe, you know, like like certain... You, know, you don't understand every facet of art, you know what I mean? And I guess I don't understand this, but maybe I will off this article. Who knows? Let's, uh, but, you know, let's jump right in and see what happens. When I heard the news uh, that my mother had suffered a stroke, the feeling that surfaced wasn't despair, but an impulse to problem solve. First, the doctor's medical jargon flooded into my brain like ticker tape. A cere- oh, fucking hell. Cerebrovascular accident due to, an em- due to embolism of the left middle cerebral artery. Uh, 5 milligrams of Eliquis and 50 milligrams of Losartan, Losartan and 50 more of Metoparol uh, in addition to 4 other pills in the mo- morning, noon and midnight. So my mum's a, side note, my mum's a pharmacist technician and whenever her and, uh, her and my sister talk about drugs and they just keep saying like, the names of the things, I just, I just, white noise, honestly, it's like, it's TV static to me, I'm just like, what, what was that? Anyway, just just I got that, and I just my my brain just went to that place. Um, my brother and I compiled passwords to medical insurance platforms, patent uh, patient portals, bank accounts, and a shared notes app entry. We filled out paperwork for long term disability payments. We consulted lawyers, wondering how to handle my mother's employer, who had threatened to fire her if she did not return to work. A month after the stroke, the night before my 29th birthday, we were in an accident that totaled my mother's car. In hopes that she would eventually be able to drive again, I gave her a few thousand dollars of my savings towards buying a new one. The stroke wasn't the only crisis. There was the dread of the upcoming presidential election, the ceaseless drag of pandemic, the expectation to complete my master's degree while I cared for my mother, and the reality that, as an immigrant family, our our full support system was back home in the Dominican Republic. For the most part, my brother and I were on our own. So I googled. I made playlists. I called one, If You Need to Breathe, all lowercase. I populated it with soft focus synth tones and obliterating loops of ambient music. Uh, I scrolled through Spotify and stumbled upon dozens of playlists engineered for mood regulation and self-care. Peaceful indie ambient. Lo-fi cooldown. Ambient chill. On Headspace, the meditation app that costs $70 a year. Some good things. Uh, I found curated soundscapes by the savant producer Madlib and the songwriter John Legend, intended to conjure soothing atmospheres and facilitate productive workdays. It was clear clear that I was not alone. In recent years, ambient music has become an escapist salve for for a planet coping with mass death, political instability, climate anxiety, the incessant culture of overwork, and the disassociation these conditions cause. The tech world has been quick to cash in, 2017, in 2017, the critic Liz Pelly wrote about the proliferation of Spotify's chill playlist, referring to, referring to it as, quote, an ambition to turn all music into emotional wallpaper, unquote. This is the late capitalist Muzak, 
smooth brain am- and anesthesia to pacify, pacify the mind. But in the months following my mother's stroke, after I rematriated, I think I was how you say it, into her one uh, bedroom apartment in Chicago, ambient music was not just some commodified act of self care. Listening to it demanded uh, that I relinquish control. It asked me to dispense with progressive time. It forced me to slow down and confront collapse. At the top of uh, If You Need to Breathe is Alessandro Cortini's Inziare. Uh, Cortini, the Italian musician musician who started out as a guitarist, keyboardist and bassist for Nine Inch Nails, is also known for his ghostly narrative-driven synth music. On Inziare, Cortini arrests time. A single synth tone, at first to bound, uh, to bound the earth, floats 40,000 feet in the air, spiraling into astral fragments. Ripples of electronic feedback crest into peaks and valleys of stretched echoes, decayed into hollowed abysses. Time becomes supple, pliant, disobedient. Listening to it, I am forced to close my eyes, to feel the way that sound travels over the body, shape-shifting into non-linear drift. I am detached from any deterministic version of the future. In this place between lightness and darkness, pleasure and pain exist in equal measure. I experience all the fragmentation of life, the reminders of trauma and uncertainty I've woken up to for the last four months. Here, I refuse to let grief become self-definition. I live unfettered from the speed of emergency. Ambient music has always contained a kind of subterranean knowing. The British musician and critic David Toop who wrote Oceans of Sound, the defining 1995 text on the music, recently argued that it has become severed uh, from the philosophical qualities suggested during its genesis in the 1970s. Back then, Ambient represented an alternate protocol for listening and music making. In the 2019 essay, Toop refers, it, refers to it as a musical form, uh, quote, committed, implicitly or explicitly, to an engagement with interpreta- interpretations and articulations of place, environment, listening, silence and time, unquote. In his view, is music that inspires, quote, a state of mind attuned into inclusivity rather than withdrawal. And yet, the dominant vision of ambient music today is a cartoonish inversion of these aspirations. In a multi-billion dollar wellness industry, Streaming platforms and meditation apps frame ambient as background music, something for detached listening and consumption. It is spa and yoga music, or field recordings for undisturbed, restful sleep. Instead of embracing ambient's potential, its capacity to soften barriers and loosen ideas of sound, politics, temporality and space, the music has become instrumentalised, diminished into sound as backdrop. It's a funny thing to think about ambient music as utility, as if it's something that allows for selective engagement. Like the musician Lawrence English wrote, quote, to ignore music is to not, is not to listen to it, unquote. Rather, the, uh, rather experiencing ambient music to allow its f- political, philosophical and oppositional knowledge to become visible requires a full use of the senses. It means tapping into the sensorial vitality of living, the tactile, spatial, vibrational and auditory experiences that being human affords us. The experimental pi- music pioneer Pauline Olive- Oliveros uh, foresaw how a sensorial approach to music and listening could cultivate politically dynamic thinking. She spent her life developing a theory of deep listening, a practice that promotes radical al- attentiveness. In this, in this approach, there is a distinction between hearing versus listening. The former is a surface level awareness of space and temporality. And the second is an act of immersive focus. Quote, 
Deep listening takes us below the surface of our consciousness and helps to change or dissolve limiting boundaries, unquote. She wrote in 1999, continuing on with the quote, uh, listening is directing attention to what is heard, gathering meaning, interpreting, and deciding on, on action, unquote. In 1974, in response to the tumult of the Vietnam War, Oliveros published a series of text scores called uh, Sonic Meditations, a precursor to a deep listening theory. The project explores how body-centered sound exercises can foster focus perception. Oliveros developed sonic meditations from gatherings of women she organized at her home. In these meetings, the group, which emerged in the te- context of the women's liberation movement, would do breath work, write in journals, and practice kinetic awareness exercises each week. The experience was designed to be collective, using intimacy and introspection to nurture a sense of healing. I practice deep listening with my if you need to breathe playlist, especially with the new age innovator Laraji's composition Being Here. It is hard to pinpoint exactly when Being Here clicks. Maybe it's at the 10 minute mark or the 50 minute mark, or even at its beatific, is that what? 25 minute close. Laraji, who has been releasing music since the late 1970s, produces oral glossolalia. Oral glossolalia. Crazy name. Uh, that's, a, that's a band name. Glossolalia. I love that. That's great. Divine, luminescent, melodic debris. Listening to his music, I am held in an unspoken embrace with his vision of the present. Notes reflect, refracting like sunlight caressing the azure waters of the ocean. This is music that curls into the ears, mutating into an imagined elysium, stopping time and space. It's not just scenery. Not, ju- not a simple balm for immeasurable pain. For some, the lessons of being here might recall some sort of empty practice of mindfulness, a concept so often misappropriated as a wellness buzzword. That enterprise often tells us to be present, so that we can self-optimize and better function as workers and individuals, rather than as human beings who are part of a community. But being here is not a demand to recharge for productivity. It asks me to forget the looping of time, to disengage with any kind of predictive chronology about my mother's recovery, but also uh, al- but also about surviving a continuous state of hardship. Being here, slowing down, was not about inactivity or lack of energy. It was about releasing myself from the imperative to endure in the face of precarity. It was an insurgent break in time, a call to drench myself in the reality of a catastrophic present and to equip myself to do something about it. The lived experience of diaspora is is an entangled state of resilience. There is an assumption that we carry an innate endurance, a superpower that enables us to perpetually surmount inherited trauma and injustice. It even lives in our speech. In the Dominican Republic, a simple, how are you, is often returned with the phrase, aquí en la lucha. Here, in the struggle, the struggle is an embodied condition, a quotidian truth. In the months after my mother's stroke, I often receive messages of resilience from family and friends. To Erez una greta, como tu mama. They said, you're a warrior, just like your mother. Hopefully I said all that right, by the way. Back then, I often thought about what it'd be like to be freed from the expectation of resilience. I turned to If You Need to Breathe, wondering if there would be some untapped reserve <coughs> of strength there. Its most played song was Palace of Time by Jeffrey, I'm going to say Jeffrey, Cantu Ledesma, an ambient multi-instrumentalist and chaplain who provides spiritual guidance to patients and families in hospitals. Listening to its 21 21 minutes of suspended vibraphone, piano and snare brushes, 
I released the pressure of everlasting tenacity. I wondered how anyone could hear this music as a self-absorbed retreat of the mind, held in the reverie of Palace of Time. A portal opened to something different, thoughtful, dedicated attention. I won't pretend ambient music is some kind of comprehensive solution for a world contending with death, war and devastation, but I do wonder how on an infinitesimal, infinitesimal, infinitesimal scale, I think that's how you say it, I I trip up on that word a lot, when it rarely comes to me, Uh, listening, infinitesimal, infinitesimal, that's it, I think that's what it is, listening closely might free us from the logic of hasty individualistic action. When I force myself to listen closely, I hear refusal to analyse, judge and act with immediacy. In its call to suspend time, the music carries the potential to press pause on the punishing velocity that attends disaster, uh, robs our attention and predetermines a a fixed future. I hear the promise to act deliberately, collectively and with care, to embrace intentional observation and action, the durational practice of a lifetime. Okay, so... In hindsight, I kind of wish I did that article in uh, in my long read series. I really wish I did that now, um, but I've done it now. And uh, I guess I put it on here partly because I just found it an interesting um, uh, quote, uh, a, th- a thing to a, th- a thing to think about. Because I've never really, I've never really understood ambient. Right, um, I've listened to it before. And I and I think I think I kind of see it in the same way as uh, like chill hop. That's what I like. That's what I. That's what gets me in a certain, in that kind of place. Maybe not as poetically as she put it, because fuck me, that was a very poetic read and probably one of the best reads I've I've had this year. Um, but yeah, I think chill hop's like my happy medium. Like there's there's a good there's a good mixture there. There's ambient chill hop in some ways, right, where it's closer to ambient, but there's more, you know, jazzy hip-hop where there's a lot of instruments going on, right, and you're getting the beats and you, you get a saxophone jumping in there or a trumpet jumping in for a solo, and it's just great. I love that kind of shit. I love that shit to death, right? Um, I might, like, a, a, a genuine percentage of the reason why I graduated from university is beca- is due to chill hop. Is is due to that particular subgenre of hip hop. Um, I I owe a lot to it. There was a lot of times where I needed to focus, and that helped me focus, and it chilled me out at the same time. It did everything. It put me on a great level, um, and I'm in forever indebted to that kind of music. Um, but yeah, I can see I can I can I I can see the uh, the benefits of ambient. I think my thing is if ambient. If I, I don't want to rely on that, I don't, I don't, I don't like relying on something too much, and I feel like if for spe- for people that I feel like a lot of people rely on ambient a lot, and I don't feel that kind of person. I don't feel like I can rely on it in that fashion. I, I don't want to. Um, there's, I think the most the sign. I think uh, I've learned the there's a song by Moscone Union. I think that's the name uh, called Weightless, and it's scientifically the most peaceful song um in music um due to its heartbeat uh beats per minute in some way and it kind of just when you listen to it that's the closest i've been to like fully embracing ambient because i i learned that one day and i listened to it and i actually like closed my eyes and deep listened to it and it genuinely helped it was genuinely great so that's the closest i've gotten to ambient but i don't think i can uh, i don't think i want something like music to be 
that imperative in my life, if that makes any sense. Like, you know, I'm stressed, let me listen to this. I'd rather not have it like that. Um, I'd rather it be something more active, like, you know, going out somewhere or um, just going go to a mate's and burning some weed, something like that. Um, something that takes steps. But um, something as simple as just putting on some ambient, I, I feel like that's too easy. Um, and uh, life is not easy. And uh, that's a stupid it's a stupid logic, it's a stupid way of looking at things, but it's how I look at things, so it is what it is. Uh, but let me know if you listen to ambient music and what it does for you. I genuinely want to know on that front. Uh, but on that front, I'll leave it there, ladies and gentlemen. From the Fifth Film Podcast Network, I've been trying to tell you it's been most good. Intro music has been chill hop, too much driving lower. <laughs> you can find the link in the full show notes. Thanks to Joe Rex for being to use the track. You can also find that link in the full show notes. And uh, thanks to Nappy Hire Hip Hop for the <laughs> for the interlude. Uh, you can find his link in the full show notes. Um, he is dropping an EP called Green um, in the next week uh, on Friday. Um, so go give that a spin. Shout out to him. I'm definitely going to be into, into that uh, this Friday and uh, and beyond. I uh, hope you find a new tune in there. And uh, with that said, hope you all have a good week. I shall definitely always try and do the same. But until the next time, take it easy. Ladies and gentlemen.